My name is Norman Osborne, owner and CEO of Oscorp, and the man behind the Green Goblin's mask. Don't apologize for listening to spectacular radio. I never do. Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom! Green Goblin doesn't take orders from insects. The Green Goblin swaps them into oblivion! Oh, you better not get your goop in my hair. Spider-Man! Threat or menace? Someone is so getting the look. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead, try. Welcome back, Spectacular fans. I'm your host, Greg Bashansky, host of Spectacular Radio. And joining me, as usual, and thankfully during these trying historic times, is the supervising producer and story editor of the Spectacular Spider-Man, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. No, thank you for coming on every almost every time we ask. We, I really appreciate that. We really appreciate that. Uh, before we dive into the uh, episode itself, we were um, I just mentioned the trying and historic times. How are you? At the time we're recording this, it is May twenty eighth of twenty twenty, and we are currently suffering in the middle of the worst pandemic in a century. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I am absolutely, uh, in a bubble of all is wellness. Um, uh, you know, I, I am incredibly lucky and privileged and, uh, you know, I, the show that I'm working on now, Young Justice, we've all been sent home and I've been working from home for the last, uh, um, two months or nine weeks or however long it's been now. Um, and, you know, certain things are difficult to do, uh, limits of technology and stuff, but most of it is not a problem. My family's all, uh, for the most part, uh, healthy. Um, and uh, I really cannot complain at all. Uh, I'm not saying I don't on occasion, but... Um, I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't complain. Uh, and again, I really have nothing to complain about, nothing, um, serious. Uh, I'm still employed. I'm still healthy. My family's all healthy. In fact, my kids, uh, who are in their twenties, uh, my son was home for about six weeks, had to go back to New York, uh, because, uh, his lease was up at his apartment. He wanted to just go month to month for a little bit until this was over so he didn't have to deal with it. Um, they wouldn't, uh, they said he either had to sign up another full year lease, which he didn't want to do, or he had to move out. So he had to go back to move uh, from one apartment to another, um, which was a bit of a bummer, but that's the extent of it. It was a bummer. And my daughter's home now. She goes back. She was home. 
she's been home for three weeks. She goes back Saturday to Washington, D.C. Um, and to be honest, it's just been great having the kids around. I don't usually get to see them for weeks at a time. And it's and so that aspect of it, honestly, has been uh, kind of terrific for me. Uh, and again, I am 100% aware of how lucky I am um, that this hasn't really affected me negatively. And that for me, there have been a couple of minor positives uh, involved in it. So uh, uh, really, and I'm just grateful for all the people who are working so hard. Uh, and I am uh, sympathetic to all the people who are really ha struggling with this for all sorts of uh, reasons. Um, but I'm not one of those people who's really struggling with it too much. I'm such a slug anyway that staying at home for me is not exactly a, a horrible uh, thing. Um, so that's what's going on with me. It's well, not that bad. Well, I can relate. I'm in, I'm not too distraught about being at home. I'm working from home. I thankfully still get to collect the pay check every other week. So I am recognize also that I am way luckier than most. No one in my immediate family has uh, gotten sick. Although a friend of mine's father has gotten sick. Thankfully he's recovered. So hopefully that will be the extent of that. I've been watching a lot of TV. I mean, I've been, I just watched uh, HBO's The Plot Against America, which is probably a scary thing to be watching these days. I've been binging Cheers on Netflix, and uh, I've also been hashtag keep binging gargoyles. <laughs> we'll talk about that more at the end of the episode. And, Great. And I have watched... Uh, Spectacular Spider-Man, Probable Cause, really great episode, and there's a lot that stands out about this one, I mean, for starters, I mean, let's talk with, this is something you did in one of your other shows, which I'm surprised doesn't get done on, with bad guys in most action adventure shows, the new, the Enforcers come back, and they are upgraded with new suits so they can better compete with the likes of Spider-Man, or I suppose in the big man's case, the likes of, the, um, of other supervillains under Doc Ock's control. And you did this with the pack, although more ex under more extreme conditions in Gargoyles. It's not something you see done with minor villains in most shows. So um, what is, what's your thought process on that? Uh, you know, one of the great dangers, particularly in a superhero show, is, is villain decay that we've seen these villains fight our heroes, our heroes have triumphed. And so the next time the villain shows up, or maybe not the next time, but by the third time or the fourth time, you know, you just no longer feel like this villain uh, is really that much of a threat to the hero. So one of the things you've got to do, and there are lots of different methods to do it, um, is to keep advancing the villain's story as well as the hero's story so that, the villains don't decay. The villains still are uh, um, worthwhile and, and provide competition. And, uh, and that's sort of a simple, basic thing. And one method, obviously, not the only, but one method is to um, give them upgrades. And so we had already upgraded Montana to Shocker. 
So we upgraded Fancy Dan to Ricochet. And then we updated uh, Ox to Ox. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines in the episode. <laughs> Ox! That works. And um, we're, we're also, speaking of uh, the villains, we're also seeing, I think... Uh, Tombstone and Hammerhead's relationship has clearly deteriorated since the last time we saw them together way back in the Uncertainty Principle. Yeah, I mean, again, one other thing you, you know, we try to evolve all the characters and um, things haven't gone well for Hammerhead. Uh, and we've sort of seen, you know, this. Uh, small wedge coming between these two guys, Tombstone and Hammerhead. Uh, and what you see here, and one of the things I like about the teaser of this episode is in the, you know, in a very short teaser, we show the three new enforcers, the Tinkerer, Big Man, and then we come back and we see Hammerhead and later Norman Osborn, and you see Norman hanging a mask and, and he, in essence, is, you know, a bit of a spoiler, but he's clearly playing Hammerhead. You know, he's putting ideas in Hammerhead's head that are clearly effective because by the end of this, Hammerhead's chauffeur has sort of sabotaged the uh, new enforcers so that they wind up all arrested. So that this, I think, from Hammerhead's point of view, it's like, okay, you're not happy with how things went with Sandman last week? Let's see how you feel uh, this week when the three uh, villains you set up didn't do any better. Um, and, you know, Hammerhead's chauffeur is always just fun, but it was just fun to also see Hammerhead just drive by the enforcers without stopping. Um, and, again, that keeps every villain from whether it's Norman or Big Man or Hammerhead, let alone the enforcers, it keeps every villain evolving. And as long as those villains keep moving, keep evolving, and certainly you could see that the new enforcers were a much bigger threat to Spider-Man this time than they've been in the past. And, and uh, they, and so, you know, you just feel like the villains are, are moving forward and again, no decay. And I love that. I And I do enjoy how, I mean, granted, it's obvious in, re in retrospect or if you know Norman from the comics, but if you don't really know what Norman really is, he's really being subtle here, and yet he knows exactly what bush buttons he's pushing with Hammerhead, who is a, who's a, and, and Hammerhead's a bright guy, he's a clever guy, but I wouldn't say he's a genius. No, I mean, I wouldn't say he's a genius either, but he's savvy, and yet, you're right, I mean, Norman's being subtle and not on the head with things and and yet he's clearly you know influencing hammerhead's thinking uh as we see by the end of the episode so i liked i mean this was a great script by kevin hops i liked how it all tied together by the end and um i think it was you know there are other things that go on and obviously all the ride-along pairs are really fun and interesting and um uh awkward I just you know it all seemed to, it all seemed to play in together uh well i agree and and finally on the subject of villains last time we saw tinker he was one of 
the master planner's lieutenant in series upgrading the big man's guys. Uh, did Ock's most recent check fail to clear? <laughs> uh, Doc Ock, uh, you know, I think Tinker would still work for Dr. Octopus, but I'm not sure, uh, you know, that's not to say that he, uh, won't take a job when a job's offered. So, uh, um, he's a bit, we, we played him in the show as a bit mercenary, I suppose, but I'm good with that. Yeah. Oh no, I don't mind that. I guess I was just wondering if he was playing multiple sides. He seemed to be in Ox's inner circle last time we saw him. Uh, he was, yeah. And I don't even know if that's changed. I can't remember, honestly, uh, completely, but it, it seems to me that uh, it's all uh, still consistent with uh, what we've done with him, that he he worked for Mysterio what, the first time we met him, then he worked for Ock, now he's working for Big Man, you know, it's all good from his so, point of view. It's all good, it's all good indeed. The other huge highlight of this episode, I have to say, is uh, Gray Delisle. I suppose she's Gray Griffin now as Sally Avril. You really flesh uh, this character out, especially since she, early on, she may have looked like she was in danger of becoming one note. In fact, there's still some fans who see her as one note. I disagree with them. I've actually had um, quote-unquote debates with people on about Sally Avril, I mean, there are some people out there who either really enjoy her like I do, or who really despise her. I found very little in between. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of Sally, A, because she's so hilarious, um, and and B, because, again, you know, uh, and I think one of the purposes of this episode was to sort of give the audience a little bigger understanding of of. Sally and and uh, what she's about. I mean, she has an actual conversation with Peter about why she blames him for what she perceives as the problems that are going on. I, I think, you know, if Liz can break up with Flash and uh, and date Peter, and Flash can ask out Shashan and she can turn her down. And what does that say about Sally's status? It, you know, it raises real questions for her that she's got to, uh, to deal with. And then, you know, we also see as she herself says, she's not a monster. It's not, she doesn't want Peter to die. And when she sees he's alive, she gives him this big hug. Thank God. Um, and then, you know, she reverts, but we still have sort of seen that, um, you know, she's a human being. And again, she's just so much fun. I mean, one of the great things in this episode is like three times she says something incredibly offensive and then says no offense, sort of with the notion that if you say no offense, then clearly you're not allowed to be offended by what I said because I said no offense, even though what I said prior to that was in fact offensive. Um, and, and to me, that's just really funny. Um, and... I mean, obviously, I, you know, I, it's not like I recommend uh, everyone get a Sally in their lives or anything like that, but still, it's pretty funny to me. So, um, I think we've all met people who do that. 
Um, and again, I think Gray's performance uh, is really pretty terrific in the role. It's uh, um, a ton of fun. Um, so, you know, it, you know, if, if people, if fans, any fans, you know, want every character to be lovely, then, you know, Sally's not going to be for them. But if they can appreciate her for what she is, I think she's pretty fantastic. Oh, I agree. And Gray is good at playing, um, how should I put this, unfriendly characters. I mean, I think we can agree she she's most famously princess azula and avatar the last airbender and that's one of the um i would argue azula's in the top 10 villains of western animation at this point yeah i mean gray is terrific you know she played helga chase for us last season i uh, was she played multiple characters on gargoyles young justice spider-man um she, she was on gargoyles I think so. I feel like it, or did I? Or maybe which? Which? Yeah, because I remember she. I can't t- remember. She actually. I know. Not... I, I know. I've worked with her before. Uh, I know I've worked with her before. Uh, Spider Man, but yeah, it was probably which. Yeah, she actually confused me recently on Twitter because she said that she had been on Gargoyles when she wanted to read an interview that you did, and I'm think and I was thinking, when was she on Gargoyles? I scoured Gargwiki and I could find nothing. So I mean. The mystery continues. Any, but um, but yeah, and I was just about to bring up Helga Jace because I, I forget if I've said this to you before, but I I've been saying to people ever since season three ended that out of all the villains you have ever written, Helga Jace is the one that I find the most disturbing. Uh, Which is saying something. Helga is is incredibly disturbing. I mean, she was created at least. I mean, or developed, I should say, for our show to be incredibly disturbing uh very intentionally um and uh and gray is amazing at at doing at writing those lines you know um in those kind of characters so you know all props always to gray she is fantastic if if any listeners out there want to hear any more commentary about how disturbing how good chase is i recommend the whelmed podcast the host of that show Rich Howard articulates just how disturbing she is on a regular basis. But, uh, yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of the one podcast, too. So, mm-hmm. Love it, love it. I did a guest shot spot on there one time. It was a lot of fun. And Yeah, uh, I heard it. Oh, cool. And let's see. And speaking of characters who get fleshed out, we spend more time with Gene DeWolf and Stan Carter than we really ever have before. We've heard them speak here and there, but um, we get a little look into what Gene DeWolf thinks of Spidey, which is a little bit of a far cry from Peter David's story where we find out that Gene was in love with Spidey. And as for Stan, well, um, anyone who's read the comics knows, but Stan Carter takes a really dark turn with one line of dialogue. You know, we had long-term plans for both Gene and Stan, um, obviously, uh, to bring them uh, toward their uh, comic book characters. But, if they, you know, that was real slow burn stuff. So um, it, 
but you know that gives a chance to give them a little characterization. There's also a fun little bit with another cop, Alan O'Neill, which is James Arnold Taylor doing his uh, Fred Flintstone voice, actually. Um, <laughs> James Arnold Taylor, who plays Harry Osborne's in there with like one line that I think is terrific of uh, the ride along. But yeah, the ride along. What we specifically asked him to do is Fred Flintstone voice because James is the voice of Fred Flintstone. I did not know that. Um, yeah, Kevin Michael Richardson uh, is the voice of uh, Barney Rubble, by the way. Kevin didn't have a chance to do his Barney Rubble voice in the show, but uh, he was in this, this episode, so it was great to have Fred and Barney um, sitting next to each other at the recording session. Awesome. Yeah, that was a great line. So many relationships get pushed forward here. Obviously, Mark Allen and Mary Jane Watson, who you've been laying seeds for for the past couple of episodes. Uh, yeah, you know, again, the ride-alongs were fun. We get uh, Hobie's about to talk again, doesn't get to. We get Shoshan and Hobie together. We get Flash and Harry together, which propels uh, one plot line. MJ and Mark sort of start flirting, propelling another plot plot line, uh, Sally and Pete, uh, obviously, um, you know, those ride-alongs in, oh, and Liz and Gwen, I thought was really fun, you know, really awkward and horrible and fun. <laughs> um, and I, I love Lacey is reading uh, as Gwen of her line to her dad, great field trip, dad. Um, you know, it, dad was lucky he didn't get the look right there. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I, it really gave a nice opportunity for characterization in a really condensed manner. Um, and, uh, we're always looking for those opportunities. How can we in the fewest, in the least amount of screen time possible, find a way to, um, characterize our, you know, give more time for our characters when we have so little screen time because we have, you know, a lead actor that everything, uh, a lead player that is uh, Peter slash Spidey with Josh Keaton always wonderful in that role, um, but everything revolves around him. But we've got this immense supporting cast, so giving them time requires efficiency, um, and this episode is chock full of that kind of efficiency. You know, you've got this big action story, uh, federal reserve heist, um, introduction of, or reintroduction of three new villains. Um, I mean, they're not actually new, but you get what I mean. Yeah. And, and yet you, you, you're juggling all this stuff. We very quickly mentioned that Silvermane's getting out of prison, that Dr. Octopus still looms. Um, we deal with, um, Flash finding out from Harry that he was juiced, and at first we think that what's disturbing Flash about that is that he might, oh my god, he might lose his championship, but no, it's that Flash is actually a pretty honorable guy, and he's the one who steps up and um, throws his championship at risk by telling the truth, um, which pisses Harry off, which sends Harry to look for his green globulin green stash, but also, Flash gets a little reward because Shashan is sort of looking at him in a new light. He's not just the big dumb jock. He's a guy with a sense of honor. 
and that matters to her. So she finally gives him a chance. And all that stuff is done with tremendous efficiency. Yeah, I mean, I know we've uh, lionized Joshua Labar so often on this podcast, but for good reason. I mean, Flash, especially in season two, often feels like the MVP of the series. Um, yeah, he he is uh, he is really in some ways a secret secret weapon, um, and you really see him take major steps. I mean, if you think about what he was like in episode one to where he's like here, let alone where he'll be by the end of it. Um, season, um, you know, we're trying to show the development of the character, get a little backstory on him, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it's pretty, I, you know, and, and again, I agree with you, Josh uh, Labar is just amazing in the role. He's really a terrific actor. He is, and um, I, and I don't think he gets near, nearly enough credit out there. I mean, we all talk about, um, and for good reason, we talk about Josh Keaton, Steve Bloom, Vanessa Marshall, Lacey, Lacey Phantom talks about them a lot, and for good reason, but Joshua Labar, I feel like he doesn't get talked about quite enough, and his flash is just so great. I mean, there's a part of me that wonders what else is there left to say about his Flash, and yet we've got a couple more episodes coming up, so I'm sure we're going to find plenty, because I, if you put a gun to my head, I would have to say, yeah, easily, and I would happily say Flash might be the best character of this entire season. He's really carrying it almost as much as uh, Peter Peter is, I mean. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, my initial reaction to something like that is, it's not a competition. We're not trying to decide who the best character is. But, oh, I'm not, but, I'm not trying you know, to do that either. But... <laughs> he's definitely part of the ensemble and and, uh, and significant. And, um, and again, we try in as efficient way as possible. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of shows that are ensemble shows. Gargoyles, Young Justice. This is not an ensemble show. This is a show with a lead character. Um, but we've created a large ensemble around this character in all aspects of his life, his home life with Aunt May, his school, um, the college where he's um, interning uh, work at the, at the Daily Bugle, um, and then all the sort of villain stuff. And we've tried our best to sort of characterize them all. And, and you know, uh, Flash obviously is no exception. Uh, the more we can, you know, if we can make Sally seem human, obviously we can make Flash seem human. So, yeah. Um, yeah, we just had tried to have some fun with it. I was almost going to disagree about there being no lead on Gargoyles, which I was about to say Goliath, obviously, but then I just remembered that there were four episodes that he wasn't in, and you couldn't do that on Spectacular Spider-Man, have four episodes without Spidey or Peter showing up. Well, it'd be a challenge, um, that's for sure. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, when I, and we probably talked about this before, at least you and I have, you know, when I look at Gargoyles and Goliath's role on that, uh, I think a better comparison than to Peter and Spider-Man is Frank Perillo on Hill Street Blues. I mean, in other words, Daniel J. Trevanti's character, Frank Perillo on Hill Street Blues, is absolutely the center of that um, of that sort of universe. Um, 
if there's a lead, he's it. But it's much more of an ensemble show. Um, events don't revolve around frame. Many events do, but not all events. Whereas in Spectacular Spider-Man, everything is really about how does this affect Peter or Spider-Man or both. And, um, and so, for example, one of the reasons that the little bits we tried to put in with Ned and Betty often wound up getting cut is because they really uh, had very little impact on Peter. And so we tried to keep evolving those characters, but if they don't evolve within the dynamic of who those characters are to Peter, there's rarely room for it. And so, you know, there's room for MJ and Mark because, spoilers, something's going to happen with Mark that will eventually affect Peter, not just MJ, not just Mark, not just Liz, but Peter and Spider-Man. Um, but, you know, creating that time for Ned and Betty, long-term it would have, but short-term, not so much. And so it, it's tough to fit those in. And I think, you know, we have three or four Ned-Betty scenes that, uh, that uh, and I think only one of them survived into an episode, and the rest always wound up being cut for time. Um, because it, it had so little influence on Peter's world, Peter's life. I get that. Um, yeah, and besides, Ned might be happier in There's a bit of a running joke in our fan commentary podcast about Ned and uh, Betty, considering how horrible a couple they turned out to be in the comics. So we're saying, oh, dodged a bullet there, Ned, dodged a bullet there, Ned. Not to say that would be the same thing here, but it's just a running joke that we have going on. Well, I get that. So, um, but, I mean, and I do enjoy the plot with the, uh, robbing the federal gold repository. I mean, granted, I always think of Die Hard 3 whenever I watch this episode, but in a good way, of course, but it's just, I just, I'm, I just like how clever Montana is. I mean, he's a, he's a pro, he's not the biggest bad guy, but I have a feeling that this was mostly his plan and he was just going to be giving the big man a cut of the profits or am I reading that wrong? Uh, you know I mean, it's about execution my guess is this was mostly the big man's plan but uh, but that's not to say I don't think he's that Montana's not smart I think he is smart clearly um, and uh, I think that uh, again it's just sort of uh, a fun uh action story um ricochet is uh tremendous fun um it's sort of great to play uh peter dealing with three characters between montana's powers and ricochets and oxes that uh really give him a run for his money um and it's fun again to see that if it were just about superpowers peter would lose um uh Spidey needs to use his smarts. And so there's this great moment where he kind of plays possum and then comments about Br'er Rabbit because Br'er Rabbit's a trickster. And, you know, Spidey as a superhero is a trickster. Um, he's a Nazi the spider. He's Puck. He's uh, Br'er Rabbit. You know, he is uh, a guy who has to um, often trick his way into winning because he's dealing with people who are actually more powerful than he is. Uh, and 
Shocker is arguably more powerful. Um, and Ox with this suit uh, is certainly in his league. And Ricochet is certainly competitive. And between the three of them, he's outmatched. It's just about physicality. But he's always smart enough to use his head. And, um, and that's what makes Spider-Man so successful is that he, yes, he's got these amazing powers, great powers, great responsibility, but none of it would work if he weren't Peter Parker and a bit of a smart ass and a bit of a brain. Um, I mean, not just a bit, a lot of both. Um, and yeah, you know, not everything works out for him. He just, we, we did a whole subplot about him getting the money to buy a new camera and his camera's destroyed in this episode. So it, uh, it becomes, you know, there's always sacrifices for Peter. One thing comes positive. Another thing goes negative. Indeed. And I, and I do like <laughs> seeing his, uh, how his bad luck is used on his show. Was there times when I have a feeling where other where I've seen his bad luck get played up in ways that don't really suit the character. But here, I mean, yeah, we saw him fall into garbage and stink before, but um, it didn't feel like you were repeating a trope that you had done before when when he fell into the garbage while trying to hide his identity from, I think it was Hobie. Which... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just becomes something else he's got to deal with. We also get some fun stink jokes out of it. I love the whole Stinky Pete moment. Um and, you know, you just feel like uh, he's got to be afraid that nickname's going to stick. Um, <laughs> I love that shot of everyone sitting on the opposite side of the room. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Liz, who really likes him, is like, she's, like, is it, she's like, is it that bad? She's like, it really is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's hilarious. You know, I love you, kid, but, yeah, I'm not sitting next to you. Um, so, you know, that's just fun. For me, anyway. It's fun for all of us. Maybe not so fun for him, but... And... Are there any other plot points for this, this episode hit that we haven't really touched upon yet? I mean, I often write down... Uh, you little... know, I mean, I that, there are great moments in there. There's uh, the whole Captain Stacy thing where, you know, our little harp music theme where we sort of unsubtly hint that Captain Stacy knows Peter's secret identity and, and is actually helping him out with cover stories um, because Captain Stacy's come to realize that um, Spider-Man is not wearing a mask to protect himself. He's wearing a mask to protect the other people in his life. And, um, and I love and, how it's become a don't ask, don't tell situation between them. Like he knows Peter realizes he knows and they both know it, and, but they're not acknowledging it. Yeah, I'm not sure Peter's 100% sure, <laughs> but um, uh, clearly he's taking advantage of it. Um, and then um, there's the moment in the elevator where Ox is somehow humming the spectacular Spider-Man theme. <laughs> and then the other two sort of look at him. He's like, what? It's catchy. You know, I, That just cracks me up. Danny Trejo humming the Spider-Man theme uh, is you know, just priceless. Um, it doesn't get any better than that. I would have loved to have seen that in the booth. I mean, I've been a fan of Danny Trejo for many years now, and um, I'm, when I think of him, I think of his of Machete or that small role he had on Breaking Bad. 
and I and to just imagine that guy humming the spectacular theme, the image is priceless. Yeah, uh, Danny's pretty great. I mean, I've worked with him now a little bit on Spider-Man, a little bit on Young Justice, where he plays Bane, and um, he just, he's so much fun. He's so great, um, uh, and he's so iconic, you know. Um, it's just, uh, you know, pretty, uh, you know, I just feel pretty lucky to have such great uh, talent performers to work with. And this episode in particular, again, I, I think about budget, you know, and if I try to do a, just an average episode of Young Justice with 19 actors, um, my line producer would string me up, I'm sure. Um, but we had 19 actors in this episode. 19 actors is insane. Um, and again, just for an episode, you know, it wasn't like a season finale with 19 actors. Yeah. Um, this was just, you know, episode middle season two. We had 19 actors, and, and uh, some of them have a lot to do, and some of them don't. Um, and uh, yes, we got to do it. Um, I wish I had that kind of budget all the time. Um, yeah, I've noticed on Young Justice, the voice the the voice cast is uh, seems especially for season three seems to be smaller on average for each per episode than the um, regular spectacular Spider-Man episode. Well, you know the funny thing is, is by any normal standards, um, the the uh, quantity of actors we have on average per episode in Young Justice. You know, people look at us uh, at Warner Brothers like, oh, my God, it's uh, insane how many actors you have in the show. And, and of course, Greg Weissman shows tend to have big casts. And um, but even I have to say that, you know, 19, it's just nuts. I bet Jamie enjoyed it. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, you'd have to ask him. My guess is, is that, you know, it's murderous for him to have to uh, juggle that many people. Um, you know, he does it so ably, but, um, you know, it is exhausting, you know, and it's a scheduling nightmare and all sorts of things. Um, but uh, somehow we did it. Again, if this were a season finale, you'd go, okay, I get it. All these things are coming together. Maybe even a season premiere. Oh, we've got all this stuff to set up. Um, but just, again, a, in essence, an average episode in the middle of the, uh, of the season, you know, not even, you know, and you just sort of like, wow. And, you know, little touches. I mean, certain things we get, because we brought the actor, like James Arnold Taylor's there because Harry Osborne's there, but that allows us to do Officer O'Neill and get the little Fred Flintstone voice. Um, Kevin Michael Richardson's there to do Tombstone, but um, that allows us to put Principal Davis in there. He's got a really funny line, or at least funny to me, that um, that Kevin ad lived. So. You know, he's taught, the principal's talking about the uh, having to report um, Harry's uh, drug usage to the NYSHSFF, which 
once upon a time, I knew what that stood for. I mean, I made it up, but I knew what it stood for. New York something high school, or probably New York State High School Football Federation or Fellowship. I have no idea what the last F is for. But uh, but Kevin, you know, I, we put, so we put that in the script. You know, I had to contact the NYSHSFF, you know, with no explanation for what that stands for. Um, which I thought was mildly amusing. But then Kevin goes, um, yeah, the mischief. Seven letter, two, yeah, seven letter acronym into a word <laughs> as if, yes, yeah, yeah, we all know the dish sets. Yeah, those are, they're tough. Um, and, uh, and so you sit there and go, we were just cracking up, so you know we we put it in the show because it was so funny. Um, nice. I, I love that. I love that. And I'm looking at the time. And I understand you have to get going in a few minutes. So um, before we re- so before we wrap up, is there anything you want to promote? Um, you know, I'm just uh, working on YJ season four. Um, looking forward to that. Um, I don't have anything else coming out. Uh, so there's nothing really for me to promote. People are always uh, more than welcome to buy my uh, novels. I'd appreciate that. Uh, the two novels in the Reign of the Ghost series, uh, Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam. I've got two World of Warcraft novels, and I've got two Magic the Gathering novels, uh, the last latest uh, being Forsaken, War of the Spark Forsaken. Um, but... Uh, I think probably what you're leading me to is uh, keep binging Gargoyles, which is Gargoyles is now on Disney Plus. Um, Disney Plus, like all streaming services, keeps track of exactly how many people are watching what shows and how often. And so, you know, one way to sort of get Gargoyles um, some attention with Disney and maybe convince them to do something with the property um, whether it's allowing us to do comic books or make more episodes or a movie or whatever, is to demonstrate that Gargoyles has a healthy fandom that's growing with new viewers and young viewers and all sorts of people. So um, the best possible thing a Gargoyles fan can do, or anyone who's a fan of my stuff, if you haven't seen Gargoyles yet, maybe you're too, you were too young or you weren't watching it at the time, but, you know, if you're stuck at home during the pandemic and you're looking for something to watch, binge Gargoyles, at least the first two seasons, 65 episodes, 65 half hours. Um, the stuff, I think, for the most part, holds up really well. Um, the cell phones are the sizes of bricks, but that aside, um, I don't think it comes across as particularly dated um, otherwise. And, uh, and I think it's, Certainly as a, I think it's still a really great series. I'm still extremely proud of it. Would love to do more with it. And this is how we got Young Justice back after being canceled was the show was on Netflix and people just binged the hell out of it. If people binged the hell out of Gargoyles on that level um, off Disney Plus, then I think there's a real chance. Uh, I don't mean any kind of lock or guarantee but I think that would create a real chance for something to happen with the property. Um, and I think if I'm being honest that it hasn't really 
reached any kind of saturation point. I'm not seeing any indication that um, that that's happened yet, but it, it, it's never too late. And if uh, enough people binge the show and binge it over and over again, uh, I think uh, there's a shot, and uh, I'll take a shot over no shot any day. I understand, I agree, and I've been seeing a lot of people on social media who haven't seen the show since it aired originally or who are watching it for the first time who are surprised at just how well it holds up or how good it still is and how um, and how undated it, it feels. And you recently did a really great episode interview with um, Polygon, and I am what I'm thankful for about that is that the talking point that it's lasted longer than the other one that is a misquote is that you want to do a real season three and not a reboot. People are now talking about that and saying that they want to see a continuation. I mean, it's like the word reboot has gone away from the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, I don't control this, so it wouldn't be up to me. Um, but yes, if I had my way, if Disney actually said to me, Hey, what would you like to do, which is highly unlikely, by the way, um, even if they decide to bring it back, I don't think it's a lock that they'd come to me. And even if they did come to me, which I would hope they would, uh, it's certainly not a lock that they would say, let's do a new official season three or even season four. Um, I think more likely they'd have, let's do, you know, they'd be like, they might say, let's do it, but let's reboot it. Or they might say, um, Let's do one of the spinoffs so that we can sort of start fresh. Um, I could certainly see them wanting it set in the present as opposed to the 90s. Um, my preference would be to keep it in the 90s and let us go through history. Um, I don't mind doing a period piece. At this point, the 90s is um, longer ago than um, when Happy Days came out and was about the 50s. Um, <laughs> You know, that was considered nostalgia. I don't mind, or that 70s show when that came out. I don't mind doing Gargoyles set in the 90s. But my guess is Disney would rather have something set in the present. It's still rather do take our characters and do the time jump and let it be in the present um, than do a full reboot. But, again, that kind of stuff isn't really up to me. It's really up to the company. They have to decide. Well, there's always 2198. <laughs> There's that too, yeah. We have a number of different spin-offs we could do that uh Time Dancer, twenty Gargoyles twenty one ninety eight, Dark Ages, etc. Um, that would just allow us to uh to um give it a kind of fresh start. Anyway, my uh reminder is telling me I've got a, a voice recording for Young Justice. All right. A, Okay, well, okay, we'll wrap up. Greg, I want to thank you once again for coming on, and I also want to say thank you as well. While we talk about fictional heroes, I want to say thank you to all the real heroes out there right now. Yeah, me too. All right. See, all right, we'll see you next time with Gangland, one of the best episodes of the series. Mm-hmm.
Spider-Man. Spider-Man. It's catchy.